Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest Binging movie theater releases. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. And I'm Are Rebecca you gonna Lange, love them or hate Spider-Man, Here Fire Comes the, the Binge, Midsummer, and Paris is Burning. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Life's too short for that mess. Jason, what's going on with you? Well, thanks for asking, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, as you as we we're sitting here taping this, it is just a mere four days after our last mm-hmm. taping. It's one of the quickest turnarounds we've done. Um, and the last time that we taped was j- the Thursday before Pride Weekend mm-hmm. 2019. And we are now sitting here, two broken people, the Monday after Pride 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally recognized as a sort of federal gay holiday, and yeah. yet we are still working. Mm-hmm. We're making ourselves work because we take this very seriously, and not like work with an E. No, no, not the fun work. Mm-mm. The very drab work with an O. Yeah, mm-hmm. the very the heteronormative O work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Rebecca and I uh, did spend a chunk of time together over the weekend celebrating Pride. Um, if by celebrating pride, you mean sitting in Dolores Park and fighting yet further about Diamantino. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. I openly burned in the sun and Rebecca said not a word because <laughs> she, like, she was like, yeah, you should actually keep talking, motherfucker. <laughs> keep talking. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So that was more or less the extent of mine and Rebecca's time together this weekend. <laughs> uh, and uh, but yeah, it was I would say it was a pretty it was a pretty low key pride for me this year. Yeah, same here. That was the most pride. Uh, well, I did go to the Carly Rae Jepsen show. Exactly. Everyone is waiting for your review. So this is the What's Up With Me. Uh, it was amazing. It was. I bought a couple of shirts and a hat. <laughs> and I've seen her, I think, in maybe both shirts already. Because I think you sent me a picture of one yeah. and then you wore mm-hmm. the other one on Saturday. Yeah, and I actually wore the hat to work today, but then... And I took it off because I was like, that's embarrassing. And then, well, I had it on. It was fine. And then I had to like walk around the building and I was like, I'm going to take it off. Um, it's hard when you have good hair, you know? Mm. Um, and then I, I realized it was Canada Day. So then I put it back on because I was like, oh, sure, I'm just she's, celebrating. She's the pride of Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I took it off and I forgot it. So I'm you not for- wearing it right now. Okay. Oh, I forgot at my desk. Oh, okay. You know where it is. It sucks because it matches my sweatshirt right now. So oh. that's a bummer. But uh, I'll, so, I'll wear this outfit again. Speaking of hats, um, on Sunday, uh, myself and our friend Heidi went to um, Hard French's Pride Party at Mezzanine. And I, for the first time around a friend, attempted a backwards ball cap. Really? Yes. I've decided that that's who I am now. I am the gay guy who wears backwards ball caps. Which ball cap were you wearing? I have an all black one. That's the only one I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just kind of sat there. Uh, I got there first and I waited for them and I just waited for them to see me in it. I was like, this is the moment of truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you can't try a new gay look on Pride, when can you? Mm. I felt like it was a supportive environment and I could take a fashion risk and not fear retribution. Mm hmm. And, uh, and you know what? I think it went pretty well. Um, so was the party outside or inside? Uh, both. So you went out the day after you got sunburnt on another hot day and you wore the hat backwards, even though your face is 
bright red. The back of my neck is far worse than my face. Ah, yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and also the uh, the outdoor part of this particular party happened in an alley with no direct sunlight at all. Okay. So okay. it was quite that ideal. That makes more sense. Uh-huh. Quite ideal. Um, so yeah. So I was wearing the hat in what I've always thought of as blowjob style. Mm. Um, because uh, you always oh, see guys. Okay. Now I hear it. Yep. Turn yep. it around so it doesn't just hilariously sort of flop off in the mm. middle of the act mm. from all the slamming of the face into the thing. Mm. So, um, but yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a fine time for hats this weekend. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. This, uh, Carly Rae Jepsen hat would look great backwards on me. <laughs> <laughs> You're not touching it. So, uh, so the concert was everything you oh, hoped it, it would amazing. be. it was amazing. Um, you know, the worst part was that it was at Bill Graham, which yes. sounds like shit. Yeah. Um, the best thing is that it was at Bill Graham and it was filled with people who were dancing and it gives you plenty of space mm-hmm. to do so. Yeah. Um, it was just uh, a real love fest. Um, she played all of the hits, all of the bangers. Very exciting. Lots of jumping, lots of singing. I was very sweaty. Mm. Um, it was uh, it was a wonderful time. I, how how was your were you up front? Oh, I yeah. was up front. I heard some, someone tell me this. Were you there at six o'clock? Um, I know who told you this. <laughs> and yes, I was. Mm hmm. It was very nice. They had the lounges on the side. We oh. uh, had some food and had some drinks. That's nice. Um, it didn't feel like there have been shows where I, I'm like, there's absolutely no way I'm a going to try to get up front, which is sure. most shows, or b get there so early I have to stand around. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. You know, sometimes you just had the adrenaline of the yeah. excitement, and I was absolutely there um, when it was just you know maybe right. fifty people. And by the end of the night, you had squatters rights legally. Yep. Yeah. You've been there for so long. Mm-hmm. So I live there now. Forward my mail. That's to Bill exciting. Thank, uh, thank you. Mazel tov. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and it, and, and you, cause that's the worst is when you show up really early for a show like that and then it winds up sucking. Or you show up really early and there are already so many other people there, <laughs> yes. which I thought was the case because uh, I was looking at some of the posts from the, the show the day before in Anaheim mm. and it was like people were saying, get there early because it, uh, it's like super busy. Oh God. Um, but this one, there was plenty of room and uh, yeah, I was I was right up front. It was it was so much fun. So much fun. There were some Yay. wig reveals. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a lot of pride excitement. It was a very queer crowd. Mm-hmm. And um, there, some people I, I was with were crying. Oh. Um, it was very great. It was great. And uh, you were close enough that you actually could see her? Oh, yeah. That's oh, good. absolutely. You didn't have any tall assholes such as myself blocking you? No, there was one guy who kind of came in late, tall oh. asshole, but like people got around him for the most part. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, no, no blocking. I was on, I was like so close that there's like this like kind of little ledge right before the like fence thingy mm-hmm. um, that keeps you from the stage. Cause Bill, like Bill Graham has a gap anyway. There's like a, a fence that they put up between the stage and like where the you closest you could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that little ledge gave me like another two inches. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Way to work the ledge. Really just uh bird's eye view there at that five feet, four inches. Um, leverage. They call well, nothing that could leverage. keep me no. from seeing. Carly Ray. Her costumes looked remarkable mm-hmm. from the pictures I've seen. Yeah, a lot of uh, Pride uh, great ready fits. Colors. Yeah, good bodysuits. Woof. Killing it. Live band. Um, it was it was amazing. It was everything I wanted. I was so happy. So that oh. was a real. That was like probably the gayest thing I did. Yeah, for sure. And then I hung out with you at the park, which is also right. pretty which, gay. Which was also the beginning and the end of your day. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> only, only got worse from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we survived and we're here this Monday after Pride Weekend mm-hmm. because we need to talk about some movies. Some movies. The first movie we're going to talk about this week is Spider-Man Far From Home. Our friendly neighborhood superhero decides to join his best friends Ned, 
MJ, and the rest of the gang on a European vacation. However, Peter's plan to leave superheroics behind for a few weeks are quickly scrapped when he begrudgingly agrees to help Nick Fury uncover the mystery of several elemental creature attacks, creating havoc across the continent. So now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are a fan of the Spider-Man series that we have coming up late, the Tom Holland. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, and I believe you are as well, yes? I am, yeah. And then we had that, you know, uh, quick detour into into the um, Spider-Verse, and that was great. So good. Um, So glad that you pushed that one. Um, What a delight. And it's on Netflix now, I think. I think it's the kind of movie that is a good one to have on Netflix because you could always watch it. Mm -hmm. You could always kind of like put it on in the background. um, If you're like, I don't want to commit to a thing. Right. It's a good one. So now we're back to live action. Tom Holland. Yes. Teenage Spider-Man. This one, the trailer's been around for a while, right? I don't know how long the trailer's been around for, but this is definitely, this is, this is the end of, um, of an era for the MCU because it is the end of what is known as phase three. Uh, which sounds <laughs> ominous. Yes. Um, all they, uh, so the way that the MCU has unspooled in films has been in three phases so far. They're about, and then the next one's going to be phase four and there's going to be a minute, a minute is going to pass between this and the next one. There is not another Marvel movie slated to open until like next summer at the earliest. Whoa. Which I want to see which, Doctor Strange too. Which I mean, remember back when we like expected there to be like always like a two year turnaround between anything and a sequel. And now we're like, there's not going to be anything until next summer. Wow. And yes, then we just ooh and ah because we're expecting at least like one a quarter. Mm-hmm. I um, guess there's enough to go back through. To yeah. Now time. Time, 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 to, time to dive back in. This current phase three is the one that began with Captain America Civil War. Mm-hmm. So this has been what's known as the Infinity Saga. Okay. Spider-Man Far From Home is the final film of Phase 3. So, which is interesting to me that the movie that was literally called Endgame... Was not. Was not. In fact. The Endgame. Hmm. Yeah. So chronologically, does this come after Endgame? Oh, yeah. Okay. It does. And it handles um, the events of Endgame in a very funny way. Ooh. Uh, because it has, if you remember from um, Spider-Man Homecoming, they have uh, like a, t- a a news broadcast by like the school news. Yeah, yeah. They do one of those to address the events of Endgame. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and uh, it's hysterical. And they come up with a term to talk about um, what happened. Um, it's, it's referred to as the blip. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, they address some of the awkwardness of how like, uh, you know, because for the half of the student population that um, that disappeared, you know, they came back five years later and they looked exactly the same. But then all of their peers were now five years older. Oh, right. Uh, so, which of course, you know, is is quite a significant thing uh, as a teen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they have a lot of fun with that. Uh, this whole movie is almost like. It's sort of just like a palate cleanser after mm. all the, the weightiness of the last few Avengers movies. It starts off feeling very much in the same sort of just winning, fun, easy breezy high school comedy vein as uh, as the first one. And especially in with, you know, with the, the, the specific uh, frame uh, framing, the setup of a European trip, a class trip. What could be more fun? Mm. Uh, so yeah, just having lots of just fun, 
shenanigans uh, with Peter, and now he's trying to get more serious about MJ. But then there's a a boy who like grew considerably during the blip, and now he <laughs> has his eyes on MJ. Oh right, because he because Tom Holland uh, Spider Man would have been yeah he got one blipped. of disappeared yeah. Uh, so uh, it's it's just th- these these actors are just so good, and they're so good at their characters, and they're just a lot of fun to watch. So this part of the movie is very very just enjoyable. But then uh tom's uh tom yeah Um, peter's uh (laughs) but uh but peter wants to just escape from all his responsibility um but it seems like they're not gonna be able to let that happen because uh before you know it there are these um these attacks by these elemental forces and then a new hero uh appears um who eventually goes by the name mysterio and it's played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm. Can you just quickly say a little bit about what elemental forces are? Meaning like earth, air, fire, water. Ah, okay. Yeah. Like the elements. Like the elements. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, go yes. on. Not elementary. Mm. Elemental. Not earth, wind, and fire. No. Okay. Uh, yes, lots of 70s R&B. Um, just a menace. <laughs> so You've uh, been saying that for a minute. <laughs> I, mean, I think the proof's in the pudding. <laughs> Uh, but so yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal shows up as this character, um, who eventually is called Mysterio. And as soon as we have even our very first scene of Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Holland standing side by side, I was immediately recasting them in a new call me by your name. Ah, uh-huh, uh-huh. they have heat. Really? They have heat in this movie. And maybe it's just because Jake Gyllenhaal is the kind of just like sexual supernova that like whoever is across from him in a scene, he is going to have this combustible sexual energy with. Mm. Um, it was like that in that Western film we watched. The Western film? I can't think of the name of it. Um, where he plays like a, a guy that's uh, chasing um, two brothers. Oh, yeah. The, the sister's, sister's brothers. brothers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There <laughs> yes. it is. We got there. Yeah. You're like, he wanted to fuck John C. Riley in that movie. <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> I mean, who didn't? Another yeah, sexual yeah. supernova, John C. Riley. <laughs> Understandable. It was only it's like human. a black hole in that movie. <laughs> I'll say. So, uh, so in this, um, all of that sexual em- energy is with Tom Holland. And I want to see the two of them reenact calling by your name. I was going to keep saying it until the universe makes it happen. Mm hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, so then we have a, so Nick Fury shows back up Samuel L. Jackson, and then he has like some sort of, you know, sort of, a lean to office set up in the middle of Europe so that he can try to deal with these different issues that are coming up because they're kind of between superheroes at this point in the universe. Mm. Cause so many of them were, uh, taken out of commission, uh, by the end of Endgame, And now there's like a world without heroes and all eyes are on Peter Parker especially because he has been gifted. Um, Tony Stark left him this pair of special like Stark industry glasses uh, that are named Edith, which is an acronym for even dead. I'm the hero. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, and so these Edith glasses have like all those like Stark superpowers Mm. and we wired into a mainframe and a computer assistant who can do anything he asks. So he's been kind of given this huge responsibility in Tony's wake, and he just doesn't want it. He just doesn't want it. He just wants to be able to be a kid and to, like, have romantic moments with the girl he likes while they're in Europe on a class trip. Um, but then, you know, as, you know, things conspire to prevent that from happening. Mm. So 
the movie is not as um, sort of innocuous as it seems at first. Like things aren't as they seem. And it does wind up having a lot more kind of relevance uh, to today. Oh, no. I know. Are we getting in a, a Diamantino moment? We might. There's deep faking is, uh, is a, it becomes a bit of an issue in this movie. And uh, and and yeah, just come following Peter as he just sort of grapples with living in a world where there is no longer any like defined moral order in a way, and it kind of falls to him, and he doesn't think he's up to the task, and it's just going through that, you know, classic sort of coming of age, grappling with not wanting to actually handle responsibility. Mm. um, But you are still struggling with still to this day. You know, for some of us, it never goes away. And, you know, he just needs to learn how to listen to what his Aunt May describes as his Peter Tingle. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real treat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then the multiple characters start saying it. They're like, <laughs> they're like, just listen to your Peter Tingle. He's like, oh, come on. <laughs> and I was like, this is, I'm like, that's, that's a little blue. That's a little blue, that joke. What do we, uh, what do we feel about uh, this Mysterio character? Uh, well, he, uh, he looks like Jake Gyllenhaal, so he's all right with me. (laughs) And, uh, so yeah, so the character is, it's interesting, you know, he sort of is a fill in for Tony, Mm. you know, he is, he's kind of filling this with all the more gay fantasy themes. He's, you know, uh, Peter finds himself without a father figure. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, a younger, more handsome version of a father figure shows up. Uh, who looks like Jake Gyllenhaal and, sure. um, and the rest just writes itself. And then you just left and yeah, dealt with things. Yeah. So fair enough. Why is this not your pick of the week? Well, because my pick of the week is uh, Paris is burning, <laughs> which would feel wrong to not have that be the pick of the week. Sure. Right. Um, uh, uh, on this of all weeks. Yes. Uh, Holy week. Yes. Holy um, week. So, okay. But- let's, let's say that, take that aside. Uh, you know, I feel like the Spider-Mans get a lot of, um, you know, binge of picks from you. Is mm-hmm. this, this is, is this one not as good? Is this not as good as uh, the uh, the MCU can give? Or is this just uh, a victim to Paris is burning? <laughs> Paris is burning fatigue. <laughs> Paris is burning erasure. Is Paris burn in this uh, movie also? Is this on a European you know, vacation? That's a good question. Um, I don't think that Paris is burned in this movie. But they they go through Prague. They go through Venice. They go through London. Did they go back to Segovia? I swear to God, that place needs a minute to recover. <laughs> They've been through so much. Um, so, no, I mean, I think that I like this movie a lot. Um, it's, uh, but it, it, I feel like <sighs> with these movies, you just hit this point where they just feel like they, they need to give you these, these big ornate, you know, action scenes. Mm-hmm. And I guess like that more than anything else is when I just completely tune out. Mm. in these movies because like it's just you know you're just watching a big video game played in front of you Mm. and you know you it's it just it's numbing like i don't know who is watching those scenes and is like actually like getting excited and like their pulse is racing and they're like oh like you know just following these like different cgi apparitions as they flit around the screen from side to side um so i think that you know i was really into the movie for the first half um and then the second half is a little bit more heavy on those scenes and it's just sort of like there's this kind of resigned thing that I start to feel whenever those scenes start up where I'm like, okay, now I'm just going to sit back and like, let that situation deal with itself mm-hmm. in the movie. And, um, and it's not going to be that interesting or exciting and it's going to play out probably in a way that I can, you know, foresee and it's been telegraphing and hmm, interesting. So, although this movie does actually have a, a, a bit of an added extra layer of, um, sort of irony on, um, on those scenes. 
But uh, but I'll say no more about mm-hmm. that. Um, and what is Mysterio's uh, uh, superhero power? Uh, he, Questioning his sexuality? He, uh, finding little brothers to uh, to party with. That's all. Finding a son for a daddy. That's what that's that's what the gays call that. Ah, uh-huh. and we are back to the Imantino. It's a real, real son hunter. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's a real thing. It is. Yes, it's a fetish. Well, it's not even a fetish. It's on the it's on the surface for the gays. Um, but uh, sun hunter. But uh, <laughs> so uh, but yeah, no, it's his. He is uh, seems especially equipped to be able to handle the um the elemental mm. creatures. He has this, you know, he's he's able to blast this green fire or something that tends mm. to you know hold okay. them at bay and then teams up with spider-man to help fight them it's interesting you say that about the fight scenes i i thinking back i feel like spider-man's introduction um into you know the larger avengers movies mm-hmm. i find spider-man scenes the most interesting because uh he uses his webbing in such like clever and different ways right um so it's not always to like you know be actively uh i don't know like making aggressive moves but it's like disarming things or like taking things from other places in space and like using them or Mm -hmm. and also the way he moves is a lot more interesting right right, than someone like the hulk or uh, even tony stark where it's kind of like up down yeah um so he's always like has a kind of like a sexy it's way where, of moving and yeah. when he lands on that car right it's like all at much the more intro right oh yeah um so to think oh. that those were those uh, still a bit much yeah is interesting well i think that yeah because i'm thinking back i was like wait who was the villain in the last one? Oh right it was michael keaton and mm-hmm. it was that whole thing and that was more of like a you know hand-to-hand combat situation whereas in this yeah it's like these like these bigger like these giant fire monsters and uh, things like that uh, so yeah, it's like, like it's okay well much. that's fucking dumb yeah um, but, uh, but they do something with it. So, you know, it's, so it's interesting enough. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 Tom Holland really remains the heart and soul of, of the films and of, in some ways, I think of the greater MCU at large, mm. like, I don't know who else I would think of in terms of just being able to hold down that emotional core the mm. way that he does just effortlessly. Yeah. So, uh, so he, and he is, yeah, he's fantastic. This is another stellar outing and uh it's a fine a fine way to conclude phase three of mcu takeover uh what are you giving this one um this is probably a binge minus okay yeah yeah i mean i feel like it's yeah i mean it was once it gets rolling you just surrender to like the masterfully orchestrated pleasures and thrills of any well-made mcu movie sure um, and it has some surprises it throws at you. So, uh, so yes. And also there's two credit sequences. Okay. There's one toward the beginning of the credits and there's one at the end of the credits. So, so stick around. So, yeah, so stick around. Um, Spider-Man Far From Home is rated PG-13 for sci-fi action violence, some language, and brief suggestive comments. That brings us to movie number two, which is Midsummer. Danny and Christian are a young American couple with a relationship on the brink of falling apart. But after a family tragedy keeps them together, a grieving Danny invites herself to join Christian and his friends on a trip to a once-in-a-lifetime midsummer festival in a remote Swedish village. The carefree summer holiday in a land of eternal sunlight takes a sinister turn when the insular villagers invite their guests to partake in festivities that are increasingly disturbing. We've both seen this one. <laughs> we have. Yay. And we both saw the next one, too. Yay. And uh, and I know you will be seeing Spider-Man Far From Home because you're a Marvel fan now. I am a Marvel fan now. Guilty. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, <laughs> um, Midsummer. We have the second movie from director Ari Aster, um, who uh, we uh, had the pleasure of enjoying his last film together, Hereditary. Mm-hmm. Um, this is similarly a horror movie um, that has one foot in family drama tragedy and one foot in otherworldly grotesqueness. Right. And cult antics. Yeah, right. Cult antics. Um, white nonsense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Resolutely. I saw someone today call this the whitest horror movie ever. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Checks out. It really does. Both um, in color palette and uh, <laughs> ethnicity. <laughs> um, there are a few color, uh, uh, characters of color in the movie. Mm-hmm. We have uh, beloved Chidi. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sweet Chidi. Sweet, sweet Chidi who plays uh, Chidi. Yes, he, he surely does. He plays a cheaty who swears. In this movie from NBC's The Good Place. But let's do just a quick recap of our, our uh, what we thought of uh, Hereditary. Yeah. Uh, so Hereditary, I, we were both generally fans of. Um, but I think it seemed like where we ran to a, a bit of a wall was we didn't think that Ari Aster stuck the landing in terms of merging this very human story about grief and trauma and loss, um, how it, we thought it kind of jumped the shark going into the final act. The mm-hmm. second you had the reveal of the shrine, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then it's like, oh, actually, you know, there was a fucking curse and a cult all along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just about, we wanted it to be the Babadook. Yeah. You know, the Babadook, which is the gold standard for horror movies that are about um, brutal human emotion. Mm-hmm. We wanted um, we wanted it to be uh, just a woman's descent into madness. Mm-hmm. And um, and and she, descent she did. Sure. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, but turns out that there was actually an external force of um, of, a, of a cult that was, you know, worshiping the demon Paimon. Uh, and you had and out there just being terror, <laughs> not celebrating gay rights. At all. <laughs> uh, not that time. Um, I would say, I would say it fell apart at the end. Yeah. So, and now once again, we have a story that has to do with an extreme family tragedy, uh, that eventually commingles with the antics of a cult. Um, I would call this the do over. <laughs> okay. Um, hereditary, hereditary, <laughs> <laughs> harrier, mm. terrier. Mm-hmm. That's a different movie. Sure, that's a that's a movie about dogs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I won't watch it, so don't ask me to. I'm not gonna. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I think this. I would just like to say, this works uh, in the. And if you are just like hereditary, never happened, and we have this one instead, and this is an A plus. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Um, I think when I think about hereditary, it makes me like question this movie because it's like you really just got a second chance to make the movie better but you you unust it you tied all the the loose ends together mm. um you know I, uh, hereditary gave you that us feeling of, of all these like factors that didn't quite make sense and like left you questioning and then the end was just like it seemed like it seemed gratuitous and if you're gonna use you know a, a, a amount of 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 gross imagery mm-hmm. you know at least like tie it back to the the seeds you planted about the characters in the movie this one is uh, this one is wrapped up in a, in a beautiful Nordic bow, like someone's mouth. Although some might argue that in this in its own way, this movie is more gratuitous with its violence than Hereditary was. Yeah, in particular, yeah. in particular with some close-ups of some skulls. Oh yeah, uh huh, mm-hmm. 
Yes. That I believe you verified the veracity of. Uh, <laughs> because of a certain expertise I mean, I don't know. Have. I don't know. She has a certain set of skills, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that that shit's real. <laughs> it's gruesome. Sure. Yes, definitely. Um, and it's gruesome in a way. One, it gives you more of a heads up. The one in Hereditary. <laughs> so oh, <laughs> did not give anybody a heads up, including that daughter. Heads off. Um, that one was just so shocking. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, well, and let's not forget the one at the end of Hereditary as well. What is the one at the end? Tony Collette. Oh, yeah. Right, that. Yeah. Yeah. I just made the gesture at Rebecca for what she does. Yeah, yeah. That all feels so horror movie, right? And, and this does feel so real. Yeah. So apparently, I was reading an interview with Ari Aster today, and this was this came to him as an assignment. From a production company. Like, yeah, this, this fucking was, right. He's th- insane and he doesn't want you to know it. Do not leave your no. kids with that man. He is fucking crazy. No, this was a, it was, he was contacted by a production company that wanted to hire him to write basically a Swedish version of Hostel. They were like, okay, we want to do a movie that is set in Sweden about like Americans abroad who wind up getting like picked off one by one. And then they got moved um, it to Rhode Island. And then, um, and then, uh, right. There's just the, the one hour. There's the, the five minutes of, uh, of, of, of darkness <laughs> each day. They have to get the whole thing each that five minutes. Just like Jenna's movie. Um, and then, and then, so he, which was be, to be like a folk, a folk horror movie. Um, and so he was like, okay, let me see what's my way in to tell that story. And he happened to be going through a breakup at the time. And so for him, it was to make it a breakup movie. So to him, this is a breakup movie, even though. So we have this, the primary couple, Danny played by Florence Pugh and Christian played by Jack Rayner. And um, they are a couple that as the film begins are already on very shaky ground. Mm -hmm. And they're Um, young. They're in college. Yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is, they're not like married with kids. Like they are. Yeah. They're in their early twenties. Christian and his his best friends are all grad students Mm -hmm. studying anthropology. And so, which means, you know, code word for insufferable. <laughs> and um, and when we first see him and his friends, his dumb friends are all like, dump her. She sucks. And uh, <laughs> but then she experiences an absolutely horrifying loss mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in the film's uh, opening sequence. And uh, and then they decide to try to be nice to her by, well, Christian decides to try to be nice to her by inviting her to join them on this trip to Sweden with one of their classmates who is Swedish and who grew up in this uh, commune um, called Horga. And, uh, and he's like, Oh, we're going to go this. It's a celebration. It only happens once every 90 years. So it's a once in a lifetime thing. It is the time of the year when there's never, you know, the sun's up all day, every day. And it's just a, yeah, you just gotta see it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Christian invites Danny and he's like reassuring his friends. Like she'll say, no, don't worry. She's going to say, no, there's no way she'll come. And, but she's just like, she has nothing else. And she's like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're like, Ooh. I know that's, a, that's kind of a, a big moment in the film. Um, that doesn't seem like it at the time. And I think the description says she invites herself and she doesn't, he invites her. Mm-hmm. He like, doesn't expect her to come. Right. She accepts. And then he comes over and he like tells his friends like, Hey, um, she, I invited her and also she's coming and also um, she thinks it's your idea. Right. So I think yeah. that like it's really setting the stage for this guy who's a coward mm-hmm. and watching his journey of cowardice um, right. kind of come up time and time again. And and um, I don't know how that kind of um, bodes for him in the greater story. Right. 
so and I feel like plot wise, almost everything that happens in this movie happens in like the first act. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because after that, it's all just called antics. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a long fucking movie. This movie is two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. It wow, goes, it, it didn't feel like two hours and twenty minutes for me. No, I didn't think it felt like two hours and twenty minutes either. I definitely was like, this is this has been on. I became aware eventually. I became aware that I'm like, this has been on for a while. Yeah, <laughs> this feels like it's been on for a while. But I mean, I was very much like caught up in like the very like the the evil spell that it casts. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I wonder if I wonder how much of that is this like intended effect of of how time fucks with you when yeah when you don't right. have a night yeah no i think truly like it's it's interesting to imagine like what would a horror movie look like with like literally no darkness at all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's one there's one moment of darkness which is like one of the scarier movies is that the most grotesque mm-hmm. but it is one of the scarier moments that i thought and it's it's at the beginning of the second part um and um and before that they like very clearly show time you see night right. you see snow come snow end um and then the last 75% of the movie is just all in sun. And it's probably over, what, like five days or something? I think right. the festival Yeah, the festival's meant to be about five days. Uh, I, so I will say that for me, I felt like this spoke to the same issue I had with Hereditary, where I didn't feel like he was ultimately merging um, mm. the human grief and trauma with his horror parts. Interesting. I felt like he did this time. Well, I was talking to Ingu about it and she was like, she was like, I personally don't think that the beginning of it added anything to it. She was like, I don't think that like that needed to be there. Hmm. Um, you know, the thing, the horrible family tragedy that happens to Danny. Um, Ingu was just like, yeah, that was like, you know, unnecessary and didn't really bring anything to wow, it. Wow. OK. Um, I don't. Uh, once again, like maybe pause me if I if I'm going to far right. into spoiler territory, sure. but um kind of her joining this trip and you know right away they get there and it's beautiful and it's these like hills of like you know tall grasses and flowers and beautiful white people it looks like have you ever seen the magazine kinfolk <laughs> it's like the whole like what is it it's called hige like the, oh yeah uh, lifestyle of right. like nordic everything looks like right. it's artisan handmade beautiful yeah. everyone's beautiful these like backpacking right. youths this is a new subgenre called higa horror <laughs> <laughs> what's it what's the festival called again horga oh higa horga higa horga horror there it is oh found nope, it you got it um and and so like americans do when they go to a festival in europe immediately they start taking mushrooms and and she is like trying to balance what she can and cannot do based on the trauma she's experienced and she kind of gets you know lightly peered pressure and, and doesn't want to be a, a, a wet blanket and take some and i feel like that to me is one of the scariest move parts of the movie because you have someone who has um, uh, an internal right. horror just at arm's length and she knows that by doing this you see her like try to control herself as like the right. bad th- thoughts start to come yeah and it casts like um it casts a shadow on what's happening in a way that like mm-hmm. uh and oh the way they like show tripping in right. this movie the is visuals. so creepy and so good so like yeah, is, the, is it happening is it not happening yeah. it, like because they don't do like the camera thing where the, the picture has to warp and it's like whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like it's all no. pres- it's all very just stationary and very right. static it's like subtle but also also terrifying yeah. i personally am, am terrified yeah. of psychedelics yeah um so that was very triggering yeah, when you realize that she has opened up like a limitless void of horror that she has and now she's and she's tripping and she's nothing she can do about it now mm-hmm. and she's just going to have to go through 
uh, whatever she's going to see. And then she realizes like, yeah, too late in the game that there's a whole lot of stuff she's had recently that she does not, not want to see. Seeing. So I feel like that's a good gateway from where the first part of the movie to the second part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the drugs show up again and again in the movie to make right. you kind of question what is really happening and, and uh, how much control you have over the things that already right. seem like a community factor. Right. And, and then part I think, of the commune's uh, rituals. Right. Right. Um, I think that the, her tragedy is so important in this movie because to me that's ultimately what this movie is about. Uh, you've taken these people and you put them into the situation and this crazy, gross, disgusting, uh, terrible thing that they're all experiencing is this like rebirth for her. It's mm-hmm. a way for her to um, kind of come to come to on the other side of things and like process grief and in the way that the community processes grief in a way that at the beginning to the these um americans seem so cruel and foreign and then they're kind of like well maybe we're being insensitive and then they're like no this is really fucked up um but at the other end it ends up like working i think in the way that it's supposed to for the community for her which i thought really tied the whole thing together that's why i think that this one does make up for hereditary yeah that's interesting i guess you know what's funny that uh so ari aster has described this as an adult fairy tale and the character of Danny does have an arc that certainly could suggest that, you know, the way that the community receives her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, of course, is very I mean, you can tell very early on that like she's being groomed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I guess that for me, it felt like the way that this 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 community handles death is horrifying and is not like, oh, it's cool. It's just like a cultural difference. Um, because like, they're also committing heinous acts, um, against visitors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a sort of, there's an assisted suicide factor, Mm -hmm. um, to, to that's, you know, kind of the, the real beginning of, um, of the bomb dropping out, Mm -hmm. uh, around midway through the film. And it's, it's certainly one of the most harrowing things you'll see. Is that midway? It feels like. Hmm? It's somewhere between midway and right at the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like there's still like another hour and a half there's of movie so after that. There's so much to go after you see that. And yet it feels like, yeah, time time, time has no meaning in this movie. And uh, so, but then there's, so it'd be one thing if it was just that. It was just like this belief that like life should end at a certain time. And they choose to end their lives at a certain time. That's one thing. But mm-hmm. I guess like to mm-hmm. me, like there, it's not like there's any actual credibility that we can bestow upon this commune, this commune without condoning all the things that they do to these people as the movie yeah, progresses into that. No, I'm just kidding. So- <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't, I'm not trying to say that like th- this was ultimately a good thing, but it, but it gives her a place to experience it. Uh, that makes it interesting because it's so different from the other people that she's with. Like, yes, that like I'm not saying that what they're doing is, is fine. Like, they are nightmares, and you're like, um, help understand grief. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> but like the 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 funny weird thing that happens is that this works for her. Right. Um. It doesn't work for anybody else, but uh, <laughs> but it works for her. And I thought that that was like an interesting kind of yeah. uh like a wink of the movie that I thought was was I appreciated. Well, Astra said too that even though he this was like a breakup movie to him. He was like, he, he didn't want to be about, he was like, I want the breakup to be not the most important thing. Mm, and, mm-hmm. um, sure, sure wasn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was not. Um, and, uh, and this is one of those movies where you have to watch like the main character's face in the final moments to like, to have a huge takeaway mm-hmm. because her, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cause you know, the, the last shot in the movie is a close up on Danny's face, um, while she's watching something. And, um, and then it takes, what you might describe as an unexpected turn 
uh, mm. her reaction to what she's watching. And, uh, and I was like, oh, OK, you know, like it's in, in you know, when I started to see it like that, because, you know, yeah, Aster was saying he was like, I needed that beginning scene because I need something that would be so heavy that it would hang over the entire movie. Mm hmm. And he's like, I need her circumstances at the beginning to be unfathomable. And then so that when she gets to the end, she's also in unfathomable circumstances mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and need that sort of parallel. And then also maybe in some weird way to have the unfathomable thing at the end, deliver her and finally give her like, just like be, to mm-hmm. be this cathartic release Yep, uh, where she's able to finally let go of all the things um, that have happened. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe you didn't like the final scene as a or notice that it was just a clear homage to Gloria Bell. No, <laughs> I felt like right, that. I was... mean, you would think that them playing Gloria uh, <laughs> would be enough of a cue to me, but I still, I still was just not. I was just, just thick headed. Just like, what is, what am I watching? Well, Rannigan also worked with those Swede, Swedish music producers in the seventies. <laughs> That's true. Who didn't? Um, and I also think that like the tragedy she experiences just gives you a feeling like you're then you're then thrown into this like sunny craziness and i don't know like you are like i feel like it's hard to not also carry that baggage with you as you're kind of trying to experience all these all these strange right. things and um life already seems out of control and now all ev- everything around you you can't trust anybody mm. um we're getting right back into rosemary's baby territory right. once again right yeah um and and the the person that you uh supposed to take care of you the only per- like person left around uh for you there is uh betrays you yeah yeah i mean i think that unquestionably ari aster is a masterful filmmaker Mm -hmm. in particular when it comes to just executing his visuals because he just gives you these tableaus that you have not seen before never whether it be in hereditary i mean countless countless shots in that movie that you could never forget once you see them Mm mm-hmm you know, not even just like the abjectly horrifying ones involving heads being cut off, um, but even like that that shot of um, of Gabriel Byrne up in flames, staying across the mm-hmm. room from Tony Collette, mm-hmm. like iconic. I'm thinking of like um, the the how the mini houses with the yeah. big house and like. And in the case of this movie, in case of Midsummer, like they were still Hereditary was barely in theaters when he was forced into production on this one due to schedule stuff. Wow! And they had to go. They went out filming it in Hungary. And they had to go scouting for a field and they spent two months building the entire village from scratch. Wow, really? Yeah, the entire thing. They had to build from scratch uh, in this field and then just rush through the um, the shoot. So it's like I've been working nonstop for two and a half years. It does not feel rushed. No, it does not. There is like there's so much detail in this movie there. You know, there are runes. There's like uh, so the students are um, uh, anthropology students and there's mm-hmm. so much there for them to go through. There is like all sorts of. Uh, handcrafted paintings and folk art um all the outfits there th- these beautiful f- flower capes <laughs> the there are masks it, it the, the movie is so intricate and so uh gorgeous it is to me the biggest drawback was just the writing i think that mm. once they once they get to sweden the focus is almost entirely on the visuals mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and the visuals are some of the most amazing I've ever seen in a horror film um, and the most disturbing and unforgettable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, a, there are a few character motivation threads that I felt like got dropped. 
I think that everything about Danny is one thing, but I feel like all the little supporting storylines about these, like suddenly we're in a story about academic rivalry. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then Cheaty's off being cheaty. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, but like nightmare cheaty where he's like being all selfish and aggressive. Mm-hmm. And um, and then just like people doing that really dumb thing in horror movies where they don't really n- notice that people are going missing yeah. or they don't make enough of a, f- a fuss about the fact that someone's gone missing and are like, ah, I'm sure it's fine. Especially in the considering the circumstances. Yeah. I struggled with the academic uh, competition thing. That was stupid. I felt like it came out of nowhere and it, yes. it didn't make any sense especially only- when it happens when it happens it makes it's like in the aftermath of like that of this like this fir- this first truly shocking thing that we've watched this commune do and now we care about that well so that so that's kind of what made me uh reconsider it um again at the time i i wasn't buying it it seemed like you it, they just like threw a dart at possible ways to make the group separate right for How some reason move the plot forward um but it does make sense in the context of two things. One, the crazy thing that they just saw. Um, and two, the fact that when he's talking to his uh, friends and they're like yelling, dump her cheaty character talks to him and says like, um, are you just like with her? So you don't have to finish your thesis. You're lazy. And I think this goes back to the idea the themes around him being a coward and being lazy. All of a sudden this crazy event happens and the paper writes itself. You've then been thrown into this experience where like, if you're an anthropology student, you, you now have like source material on the, easiest paper that to write and so kim coming in and doing that after that happens after the cheaty character has um you know that's why he's there that's why they went on this trip that's what he's been studying and planning and working really hard for um i think it i think it makes sense thought of that way but they don't they don't write it out in a way that it took me a while to put that all together it feels very abrupt and i think that's still a filmmaking fault because they could have set that up in a different way definitely definitely. even if they'd had like the cutaways to christian while they're watching this horrible thing like he doesn't look like oh Mm -hmm. interesting he looks as horrified as the rest of them right like it's not like you know it's not like he like that would have been the time to set that up like to see like the wheels turning his head mm-hmm. some way. Oh, I don't know if that's a failure of the actor. I don't know if that's a failure of the filmmaking or what. But like when that happens, it feels like such a shoehorn storyline mm-hmm. to move the plot forward. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the aforementioned thing where people just start to vanish. And they're like, eh, it's fine, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just felt like there was some weakness in the writing. Um, yes. I also feel like the big event that we keep referencing mm-hmm. happens, you know, within 24 hours of them getting there, um, I think. <laughs> Based on how night doesn't exist. Right. Um, and then they spend the rest of the time and the the rest of the townsfolk are, are kind of creepy. Yes. Um, they don't have light in their eyes. Um, and they, uh, like the one guy keeps staring at the other, like one of the visitors. And I, I feel like it, it, it's hard to, to know why they didn't just leave sooner. Yes. Yes. It's definitely one of those movies too, where, uh, yeah, you're like the entire time you're like, get out of there, get out of there, <laughs> get out of there. Nothing seems to be drawing you in more than things are driving you away. No, because even if you want to be like nice to your friend who brought you there, he's also so polite all the time that it's not like people have been like, oh, we can't tell him we want to leave. Right, right. They've been like, oh, we're going to go. We're going to go find where the nearest city is and just camp out for a few days mm-hmm. or something like they are. They act like that is like it's impossible to leave. And gradually it starts to become clear that it actually kind of is impossible to leave. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't even try. Or, you know, they'll have like some moment where they're like, you know, we got to get out of here. And then somehow they're like talked down and they're like, well, OK. Right. Um, as weirdnesses pile up and as their f- actual friends start to vanish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So I, I agree on the writing um, that you have to kind of go back and, and figure it out. And it, it's disruptive in the moment is not great. And also, yeah, it's there's just not enough of a believability factor into why they would stay. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, so it's a, you know, it's a fable in that way. It's a fairy tale. And I do, I do actually think that the violence, especially in the horrifying scene we keep alluding to is gratuitous. I, I think it's unnecessary. He goes in on such a tight close up on such a horrifying thing several times. And I get that it's supposed to, you know, like we're supposed to, I guess, be feeling the shock that Danny is feeling. Um, you know, she's already been sent reeling by this thing that happens at the beginning of the movie. And now she's seeing this. But it did feel borderline sadistic, um, <laughs> I thought. <laughs> I know you I know you you have a thick skin on such on such matters. <laughs> I know it takes a lot to, to, to upset you. Uh, but it felt a little like, why are we needing to look at this in such grisly close up detail? I think uh I think it's not, it wasn't as shocking to me again because um, you get a lot of buildup. I feel like you know where this is going from a mile away. 100%. All um, the way the second one goes wrong, though. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that the grossness and the grotesque detail exists, to, exists as a counterpoint to the beauty and artisanal drawings and the cleanliness and the the higa and, the, the <laughs> and uh, how... Everything is so perfectly put together, mm-hmm. and then in contrast, you right. have this like um, this these visuals that are yeah. I can see that just to drive it home that like this is really what's happening. This mm-hmm. is not a, this is not a joke. Uh, I mean, not that they not that they don't already seem plenty creepy um, by that point. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, uh, from, but yes, from moment one, I was right. Wouldn't have trusted any of that nonsense. So, but uh, but yeah, no, this is. Yeah, you could say it's the whitest horror movie ever in a lot of ways, both from, um, you know, the color palette mm-hmm. and the Swedes and also the sort of the the white movie character ways that these characters don't really perceive any danger and just keep going. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like the fact that, um, you know, although no characters of color uh, have an advantage in, in the situation, um, they aren't treated any differently. And um, you have a, you know, imagery that's, you know, about a, a, a tribe and and um, and their, um, you know, animalistic um, ways. And, and that tribe is white. <laughs> nice. Let me ask a question. Would you watch this movie again? Oh, good question. Um, if if I was with someone who wanted to see it, I would watch it again. OK, I don't think on my own I would. Right. You know what movie I've been wanting to watch again? What? Even though I never thought I would ever say this, is Mother. Oh, yeah. The, the Aronofsky one? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. That one, to me, is like a puzzle box. So, like, mm-hmm. I, I like revisiting it because... Have you seen it multiple times? I've probably, I, th- I think I've seen it at least twice. Maybe okay. three um, but, uh, but, yeah, like, that's one that I have in my library because, like, to me, it does have rewatch value. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I saw this in Toronto, I got like the invitation to come to the press screening here. And I was like, oh, I'll go see it a second time and I'll take Rebecca. And that way I'll have like a really firm point of view on the movie. And then by about like, I don't know, <laughs> again, had no idea what time of the movie it was. But <laughs> eventually I was like, I will not be watching this again. Hmm. I do not care to. Because this, of the, because of the graphics? Because, no, not, no, not just that. It was just like, it's so, um, it's just very unpleasant. And, you know, and it's just kind of like this, this slowly mounting inevitable dread because we all know that this is all going only one way. Mm-hmm. 
And um, and just it was just yeah, I was like, I don't care to experience this again, even with the with the man butt. I mean, I can wait for the gifts of that. <laughs> uh, she's alluding to Jack Rayner's lengthy nude scene um, mm-hmm. that I mentioned previously on the show. But uh, but yeah, I think I would probably say the same thing. Uh, if I had a friend who hadn't seen it and they're like really keyed up to see it, I would watch it again just to like see how they react to it. Yeah. Um, and giggle, your- maybe like have some inappropriate food while while it's happening <laughs> did um did your crowd have big like reactions to anything or was it a very like quiet critic crowd oh, i think it was a quiet critic crowd Ugh. <laughs> i kind of want to see it in big theaters because i want to like witness people reacting like freak out yeah 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 and it's, it's one of the buddies movies of the summer i think there's been a lot of people are going to go see it and i can't wait to see <laughs> the reactions that start to trickle onto social media whenever it uh whenever it opens what are you giving it for me, it's a consume plus, I'd say. Yeah, it's somewhere in that consume plus binge, uh, minus, binge area. minus area for sure. Midsummer is rated R for disturbing ritualistic violence <laughs> and grisly images, strong sexual content, graphic nudity, drug use and language, all of which time that was actually true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is time for our last movie of the week, which couldn't be more different. Paris is Burning, which is our pick of the week. Jenny Livingston's documentary offers a behind-the-scenes glimpse at the golden age of New York drag balls, where rival fashion houses come together to celebrate, vogue, and compete for bragging rights. Shot between 1985 and 1989, the narrative intercuts between individual stories that chronicle the experiences of African-American and Latinx gay and transgender subculture in a time when the city was consumed by the ideals of wealth and glamour. Uh, So you might be asking yourself, why are these two homos talking about a documentary that has been around for nearly 30 years Mm -hmm. um, and has been on Netflix for what feels like that entire time? (laughs) (laughs) I still have a DVD of it at my house. (laughs) Oh, damn. Yeah. No, I mean, this 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 movie's been around from Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Envelope all bent up. (laughs) You know, no late fees. That's what they get. Mm -mm. Um, so, and it's because Paris is Burning, which is one of the greatest documentaries ever made, has now been re-released theatrically in a new 4K restoration. And which Jason said, and I quote, yes, queen. Yes, queen. And I am the kind of nerd who cares about things like 4K. And even if I don't like ask me to explain it, I couldn't. I know it's like basically you're having like four times the clarity that you would have with traditional HD clarity with the K clarity with the K. And, um, you know, she used to dance around the corner. And, uh, so, uh, and so, you know, they take the original print, the original print of Paris is burning and they go through and they do, um, this like digital restoration of it. And they're like, you know, removing articles of debris, cleaning things up and, um, and then giving you like this very, just fresh, clean, new look to the film it still looks very grainy and very gritty because like this was filmed, I think on, you know, 16 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does not have necessarily a, you know, it doesn't look like uh, an HD TV show all of a sudden, but I think, you know, it's a, a very important film and it's great that there's now a much better looking print of it going around. And it's an opportunity to see this movie in theaters. And mm. this movie is more relevant now than ever. Uh, you know, we, these, the, the people, that are the subject of this film are now much more centered in mainstream pop culture Mm -hmm. uh, than they ever were before, specifically trans women of color. Yeah. um, I would say also 4k makes sense for this movie because it is a documentary. I think Mm -hmm. that sometimes when you try to take a, 
film and then you update it, it kind of ruins the director's original vision of or your interpretation of what it looked like. Where this is like, it's capturing real life, right? So, right, so it's um, okay for it to look super realistic. Right, yeah. If anything, that's yeah. clearly better. Don't want to lose any of the cinematic. I feel a need to point out that, like, for instance, Criterion frequently works with directors on the 4K restorations on movies, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to make sure that they, like, have the blessing of the director and the cinematographer. Like, they don't want to make it look like a soap opera. You know, it's not it's not that (laughs) whole thing. But uh, but, you know, yeah, agree that there's less of a chance of people watching it and being like, but that's not what it looked like at all when I first watched it. Now I feel a distance from Mm -hmm. it. I don't have the same emotional experience. But um, but yeah, so but yeah, no, like we're saying, like, this is now a subject that has been much more centered in pop culture. And I think that they are, they probably savvily began this process as a reaction to the show pose, mm, which is, uh, yeah. which I mean, pose is essentially about this exact place in time. Yep. Although have you watched pose yet? I have. Uh-huh. Okay. I've watched, uh, mm, I'm not caught up at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe like four or five episodes from the first season. So watching, so, so I watched this, the 4k restoration, uh, when I was in Toronto two weeks ago and then you watched it on Netflix again over the weekend. Yeah. So I watched the original. I actually haven't seen the 4k restoration. Right. I just rewatched the original. Yes. And, uh, the so, 1k. So what were, what were, you know, did anything and you, and we had both seen the movie previously. This mm-hmm, was not, mm-hmm. not a first time viewing for either of us. Uh, but did anything jump out at you this time, this time viewing it? Any, any, any sort of, uh, thoughts that you had that you were like, Oh, actually I never noticed that before. Or, oh, this is interesting for this day and age. Hmm. So first I want to say the first time I saw it was embarrassingly late. And, mm. um, the realizations that I came to when I watched it. So it was maybe like four years ago. Okay. Um, are embarrassing. You know, that thing when you like think you're the, first person to see something or you just like are, are, are proven to be so ignorant about something that it already right. was in pop culture. Yeah. Um, that it was like, there was a sense of shame of being like, I can't believe I've never seen this. Yeah. I can't believe I thought, um, and also like not being a big, um, like eighties fan or knowing a lot about, um, gay culture or like even like the pop culture, mm-hmm. not even realizing Madonna's Vogue is about, like also involves voguing right all that's kind of like not known to me so uh a a lot of a lot of um uh, doors were opened by this movie right a lot Mm. of connections that should have been made a long time ago so right um so watching it again i i i knew that there were things that i had probably missed and there's like even more i needed to learn from it um and actually in the mean in between that viewing and this viewing, um, I got uh, a promotion at work and you know they ask you to send out like those emails that are oh, like right. well, introduce yourself to the team. And I like was moments away from just including the clip of business realness in there. Um, even though I am not I'm not black, but there's this whole thing about like um because I I've lately right. I've I've been do, kind of doing that thing where I do this like yeah. preppy clothes Ex- thing. Executive realness. Executive realness, where yeah. I'm just like, this looks weird, but like this is like it feels like drag in a way and i feel like um, i speak on behalf of all of our listeners when i say pics or it didn't happen <laughs> we all want to see you in your executive my three piece, three wanna, piece suit with my leather briefcase we want to see it um but uh yeah it's like the thing where it's like yeah well, this brown queer woman thinks that she's getting a promotion like i don't know it seemed really funny <laughs> at the time um but uh yeah, I guess, you know, once again, just like seeing how where we are with pop culture, 
Um, and, it, and this was, you know, kind of in the movie it, itself where it was starting to get kind of picked up by um, the news. And then you, Gwen Verdon is interviewed. I was going to ask the you one. about that. <laughs> I like paused and I like re- re- did a rewind <laughs> and I was like, I need to hear her voice. Yes. Yes. The, the real Gwen Verdon is seen in this film uh, being a celebrity judge at a ball at the tail end of the filming period whenever um, the scene had found a bit more uh, traction in the larger Manhattan world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then some of the Gwen Verns of the world were showing up to judge these balls. Yeah, that was that was hilarious. Yeah. Um, but so I would say the thing that came out the most uh, would be between this and Pose, kind of thinking about the grotesque 80s uh, capitalism, not just as grotesque, but as a forcing factor mm. to change. Um, that things became like transactional and attainable by money. Um, one that that was just straight up, straight up what people were saying. Um, it wasn't like an inferred thing. And that in some cases things did become attainable. People were able to buy surgeries or people, you know, were able to get things to make them look, um, as though they were part of a group that they didn't belong to. Mm Um, I think even though it wasn't progress. It was a step towards progress um, in uh, in maybe like an unintentional way. Thinking about that movie and then thinking now about how like Beyonce and Jay-Z are, are billionaires and Oprah is, is a billionaire. Like that's that's so crazy. It's so crazy that um, that was not a that was not a, a case There were not black billionaires or millionaires when this movie came out. Right. I mean, probably some athletes. Maybe. Yeah. But still. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's just a remarkable time capsule. And I think to me, it also reminds me that like, of just how cyclical things are, Mm, um, Mm -hmm. and how like every generation always has the exact same thoughts about the one that came before and the one that comes after it. Yep. Yeah. Um, and you know, we always think that everything we're doing is brand new and every argument we're having is the first time the argument's been had Mm -hmm. and it's never, ever the case. And uh, in particular, there's I can't remember if, it, if it's Pepper LaBeja or Dorian Corey who's talking about like oh, these these queens today. Uh, it's mm. just like, you know, when I was coming up, we all ever all the girls want to look like Las Vegas showgirls. And, uh, you know, and, and then my my generation was over that. And so we were all about looking like movie stars like Elizabeth Taylor, and Marilyn Monroe. But now the children today they want to look like models, models. Yeah. <laughs> or said, like, or like TV stars, right? right? Like said, dynasty says it with such like incredulousness, like, mm-hmm. like just like, like shrugging the shoulders and being like, ah, what, <laughs> what will they think of next? Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I, I mean, the, you know, watching, you know, drag races as thoroughly as I have, it's just a never ending thing. Like there's always, this is like the trajectory of generations of any sort of like culture or movement. Like there's always like, this reaction that any generation has to what came before and what's coming after it mm-hmm. of just like disdain, disbelief and, and throwing your hands up and saying the whole thing's over. Forget it. <laughs> it ends here. It ends now. Only my generation did it right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's yeah, it's really remarkable. And speaking of drag race, if you are a viewer of drag race and you've never seen Paris is burning, please watch it and get ready to learn where RuPaul learned literally everything he ever says. <laughs> like especially now that you've just rewatched paris is burning if you were to go start watching literally any episode of drag race at all um you will have multiple paris is burning quotes in every single episode 
it's funny you say that. I, I just tried watching Drag Race mm-hmm. um, on Friday um, before I watched, rewatched this movie. Interesting. Um, it's like you can't stream it anywhere or something. No, not in America. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's on Netflix in Canada. That's why I say that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why you keep going to Canada. Yes. Okay. Um, man, I hate that show. Man, I hate that show. I can't. Why? I can't, I can't get with it. <laughs> what is I don't it like about it. it? It's just so much arguing. <laughs> it's the fighting that turns you off? Yeah, it's the fighting and the... I don't know. I'm not into it. That's hilarious. Well... Bad roasting. Bad roast. Well, there's good roasting, too. Well, the reading room comes from Paris is Burning. The, you know... Sure. How, how oh, it- I'm not saying that it's not... He doesn't, you know, right. reference an amazing culture. I'm just saying I hate that show. <laughs> Fair. Uh... Yeah, there was actually there was um, one of the most notorious bits from this most recent season of Drag Race revolved around um, a queen who was eliminated early, partially because she um, savagely mispronounced one of the most famous Paris is burning quotes. Uh, They were doing um, a drag parody uh, called um, uh, Good God, Get Out Girl. And uh, and it was a parody of Get Out. And one of the uh, and one of the girls came through. Well, two of the girls came through um, dressed as maids and they are voguing. And uh, and then one of them in an attempt to say opulence, you own everything mm-hmm. instead said opulence, you earn everything. Oh, no. Uh, and when I first saw that particular episode it was when i was in la for mean gays and i was at a viewing party with willem from drag race and then i remember willem i'll never forget her head like swiveling around and just being like does she not know that fucking quote wow. so to this day i mean it's 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 something that they will get you for sure like this is this is a sacred text mm-hmm. and i think that's the mm-hmm. same night willem also told a story about how when they were shooting willem's season of drag race um, they made them all sit down the first night of production because Rue had been making all these references to Paris is burning and, and all the other things that Rue always quotes and the girls weren't laughing enough. And so Rue told the producers to make them all watch them that night. So they would, <laughs> so they would laugh at what Rue said. Nice. And Paris is burning was one of the things that they nice. made them, that they made them watch. But, but, uh, but circling back to more serious stuff, um, we continue to see in the press, uh, now, fortunately, getting more attention in the press, the ongoing mm-hmm. um, uh, deaths of trans women of color. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that, unfortunately, plays a very sad role in Paris is Burning as well. Mm-hmm. It really has one of the great kind of just gut punch it really reveals does. in its in its kind of epilogue. You know, yeah. that one of the characters that arguably is the most endearing and vulnerable and sweetest. Miss Venus Extravaganza. Has, has died a horrible death. Yeah. It's they really they don't um, they don't mince any words no. about what happened. No. And I think that movies like this, you can kind of um, you can kind of expect a certain amount of loss at the end. And mm-hmm. I think maybe you would expect that this would be kind of just like a list of people who died of AIDS at the end. Right. And it's not that it's, it's not. this is um, it's it's just surprising and, and shocking, I think, even though it shouldn't be right. But it's, right. All, it's not it's not the tragedy you expect. Right. Um, and it is it's it's devastating and um, it's sad that 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 hasn't um, made, we haven't that, made progress there. that it's still just as relevant. Yeah. And that just there's still just the same amount of survival sex work for mm-hmm. trans women of color and and in, you know, in, in it's almost it makes me think of on the current season of um, Pose on season two. 
Uh, it is set in 1990 when Vogue by Madonna has come out. And, um, and the community depicted in the show is not, um, is not like angry at Madonna for, mm. uh, for appropriating the thing. They're just like, well, this is fantastic because that means that now the whole world's going to know we're here. Right. Like now we're going to be stars. Like everyone's going to care about us. And I'm guessing that by the end of the season, they realize that that's not what has happened. Yeah. That's a, it's a weird thing in general, both culturally and, um, in terms of like, uh, political, political, mm. uh, gains and, and safety. Right. But, um, it really was, you know, in the end of the movie, it gets they it gets picked up. It's on the news. Mm-hmm. Gwen Verdon is there yes. in Pose. Madonna's there. You know, some of the voguers from the movie are now working for mainstream artists. It's part mm-hmm. of the mainstream. And then it drops. Yeah. Until, what, the past five, seven, ten years? Yeah. Since RuPaul came back and, mm-hmm. um, and you have Broad City and... I don't know, uh, right. and, you know, queer culture. Well, well yeah, just um, sort of like, yeah, the trans tipping point that we hit culturally. And right. Um, but there was a, there's like a huge block of time there. Not trans and drag, not to conflate trans and drag. No, no. Yeah. But like but in it, terms of um, yeah. what they reference in right. this movie, um, uh, there's like what, like 1995 until 2005? There's It's kind mm-hmm. of... Like a like a desert zone. Yeah. Well, even even yeah, even Rue's career, Rue was a has been mm-hmm. for that entire period. But but uh, but that's that's what's so interesting about the kind of the you know the the conceit of these balls was to create this sort of imaginary world where these um, these people of color, these Black and Latinx peoples, were able to celebrate um, themselves the way that they saw white people being celebrated in media in pop culture to have the opulence and the elegance and the, and the eleganza and uh to give prizes you know to give each other awards uh, in the way that mm-hmm. you know they knew that they would never be able to have straight society reward them um and now um pose is an award-winning show mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we have you know like the trans women of color who star on the show are being feted on the red carpet mm-hmm. and i think for a certain generation it creates this almost sort of a feeling of um you know it's 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 it clashes like rue paul has said many times in interviews that like he'll never quite no matter the fact that like his show has has unambiguously mainstream drag but he will always say that drag is will fundamentally never be mainstream because drag is a mockery of the mainstream drag is about about the deconstruction of the ego mm. and is about you know pointing to the absurdity the inherent the inherent absurdity of 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 the world and mm. you know saying the emperor has no clothes and that kind of thing um so uh and yet drag race is also now a multiple emmy winner and uh and that's and that's part of again why it's so sad that still to this day that you know now like these worlds have been invited to quote unquote the party right um and yet still so little is being done uh, to help the trans women of color who are still living on the margins of society mm-hmm. and who are whose murders are uh, are at a disproportionate number and are generally not taken seriously. Yeah, I mean, you know, we still have you know so many issues um, independently. You know, without even thinking of the intersection of race and gender and sexuality. Right, um, we have abortion laws targeting women and preventing them from having ownership of their bodies. We have police and uh, the justice system doing the same for um, black people. And then queer people uh, just kind of on the, just kind of on the brink of not, you know, no waters being 
super crazy and then you have the intersection and it's we haven't made progress anywhere really yes <laughs> so this is what i'm, what I'm well, trying to say we're throwing our hands up yeah. uh but that again again paris is burning has that wisdom still there like sometimes the world is just going to be a fucking shit show and all you can do is find a safe space with your community and just fucking dance and and celebrate each other yeah it's funny i think of like these white american communities who voted for trump because they they feel um you know so lost and so underrepresented and 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 they have nothing uh, going for them in the world and it I don't know. You have a, you have a group of people with like nothing, nothing going for them. And like so much of that, they create out of that nothingness out of like excitement and talent and energy and um, creativity and mopping and, and I'm mopping a little bit of mopping. <laughs> uh, and then you have a group of people who like, I don't know, just do fucking nothing with it. Like, I don't know. Take opioids. Yeah. Anyway, enough of that. That aside. That aside. <laughs> what we're saying is that Paris is burning has something for everyone. And uh, and uh, no matter who you are and what your story is, you will find inspiration from uh, from watching it. Mm -hmm. It's also it's very short. It's it's almost just it's barely over half the length of Midsummer. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, And uh, and yeah, especially if you live in a city where the 4K restoration Mm. of Paris is Burning is going to be playing. Please do yourself the favor of going out and seeing it. There is no such thing as a regretted viewing of this movie. I can't imagine. Uh, and uh, and then hopefully, I'm guessing this is all gearing up for some sort of big deluxe, um, you know, Blu-ray reissue. Hopefully from Criterion, um, that will also hopefully have some of the uh, additional footage that you were alluding to yeah, earlier. I think, I think it's off. 75 hours were filmed, and the movie is like yeah. just over an hour. So much more there. And can so you imagine much. if there's like yeah, just unseen Venus extravaganza footage? You know, RuPaul is trying to get his hands on that so it looks like he just made those quotes up absolutely and there is a and you know, season two of pose also by the way uh is paying direct homage to the sequence where octavia saint laurent goes to the model casting call oh really that, oh yeah, sure that's, i can see that's that been a, that's been a big part of season two i can see that um it's a binge it yes it's super is, binge it's one of the greatest documentaries ever made and it's simply a must-see for every human being it's rated r for adult situations language and nudity that's it that's it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Binge. Be sure to subscribe. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on SoundCloud. <laughs> you can find Jason on Twitter at... Excess Faggage. Me at Fight Balance. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end, that's amazing. There There goes goes the the binge. binge.